As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Cameron Dawson, tear-eyed over the quality of that data check. CIO of New Edge Wealth joining us right now. What's your conviction to next year? I'm talking about you need to get conviction now. Do you have a lot of conviction? I think that we have to judge as we go into the end of the year, when we look at where we end the year with positioning and sentiment and valuations and earnings expectations. Because if we get to a point where those things are stretched, where people have been drawn into the market, everybody chases the market into a rally into the year end, that's when you probably want to start asking questions of how sustainable or durable is. We learned that lesson really powerfully this year in the opposite direction. People were underweight, valuations had come in, positioning was very light. And that's set up for a very powerful year this year. One really difficult thing for a lot of people is to get two things right. One, the call on the economy. And two, what the economy means for financial markets. I was looking at Deutsche Bank's call yesterday. Lisa and I were going back and forth on this. They've got recession, 175 basis points of cuts. Then Binky Chad is saying 5,100 on the S&P. Yeah. Is good news bad news or is bad news good news? What is it? I mean, it's sort of that I want it all and I want it now kind of mentality, which is that I want a Fed that's supportive and I want an economy and earnings that are going to be growing very strongly. And I have to think that we need to ask the question of if a strong economy and strong earnings are consistent with having Fed rate cuts and a recession. And if we can have both at the same time, meaning that if the Fed is cutting rates, can we really grow earnings at 12% next year? Do we actually have the potential that we could have a third year in a row of earnings being closer to flat if we have a recession? Well, this is John Solfus basically saying people think we're late cycle, we're actually mid cycle. Mm-hmm. That if the Fed cuts rates, it's just sort of a mechanical year over year trying to adapt restrictiveness to inflation, and that that will pave the way for companies to continue to evolve, particularly in the consumer cyclicals. Thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting. You go back to the times when the Fed cut rates and we didn't have a recession, 95, 98, and 2019. What's interesting is that the Fed was actually very fearful of a recession in each of those times. They talked about the U.S. not being an island. What's interesting is that the market wasn't scared of a recession. There was no impact to earnings. You had the market hitting all-time highs as they were cutting rates. So I think we have to take the cue from the market. If it starts to sniff out that data is weakening, that data is starting to come in where we need to be cutting earnings estimates, we don't hit all-time highs in markets, that's when you'd say maybe recession risk is actually higher. So what's your conviction? Is it to basically <laughs> shift away from the conviction of everybody else that equities are going to go higher and to take the other side? 
I think it's incredibly important to remain invested, even in times of uncertainty. And the way that we do that is focusing on quality, focusing on companies that can block and tackle, which just means that I want to take out the risk that the economy is going to roll over and I'm going to have big earnings downside. But I also don't want to be over levered. I don't want to be overextended on risk, having to have the best case scenario in order for my investments to work. So it's still that middle ground. It's worked really well this year. It likely works really well next year, as well as we think we are still in that late cycle environment. What, what's so interesting to me is the idea of developing a conviction with 5% money market fund trillions out there. Is part of your optimism that that money shifts given disinflation, lower I, yields? Yeah, it, you know, it's a really good question if all the money market funds is truly investable capital. But not, not all, but even at the margin that supports the bid. And we do know that investors compared to the 2022 peak are about 3% less allocated to equities than they were at the peak in 2022 looking at the AAII data. So that would suggest that there is still money on the sidelines, that there still is positioning to be drawn back in. And the good news is, is that there's cash, there's liquidity in order to do that. We'll have to continue to watch that data because because okay. once people get fully invested... Well, this is critical. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but you've nailed it. 3% is the delta here mm -hmm. from AAI or whatever it is, AARP, whatever. But the answer is, if that money shifts and makes up that 3% difference, what does that do in S&P or Dow points? Well, it likely means that we can continue the rally, but then it did, it calls into question the durability of the rally. Do we do we test the 2022 high? Do we break through it with gusto and really have the kind of rally that we saw coming out of times like 2018, 2019? Or instead, do we have this sideways chop that looks a lot more like what we experienced in the 70s or even in the 2000s? And that's what Chris Harvey's talking about. Did you just request a Dow forecast? I did. Is that what I you squeezed did. in? Just busting that Do you chops, have a down you know? forecast? Absolutely not. I'm sorry. That was beautiful. Do you want to explain why you don't have a down forecast? Because it's a price-weighted index. Thank you, Cameron. TK, is that enough? Ed Yardeni, SPX 5000s, 41,000 on the show. Clip that. I mean, honestly, put that out clip on honestly you guys yeah. just going to troll each other all just, morning. Okay. Beautiful. <laughs> I think this is the perfect ending to this exchange. It was very us. good. You know, it was great. It was very good. Cameron, thank you. It's good to see you. Cameron Dawson of New Edge Wealth. Welcome back anytime. I'm going to play this off my book of the year years ago. Ken Rogoff's very courageous. The Curse of Cash. He's writing about where we are with digital currencies, what the Bank of International Settlements in Geneva thinks, what central banks, as he was at the New York Fed, thinks. Bill Dudley uh, joins us right now, writing an important column on CBDC, central bank digital currencies. Bill Dudley, very valuable and thought-provoking uh, th this morning. We just saw criminal trials, guilty verdicts, maybe appeals involved, but are we getting away from the presumed criminality, the punishment, the secrecy that Ken Rogoff had the courage to talk about? Well, I think that the uh, crypto space is in disarray right now. And the real question now is, are central banks around the world going to introduce central bank digital currencies to, to sort of take up that slack? Um, I think that's going to happen probably going to be more evolutionary than revolutionary because it depends on what payment system that you're starting with. I think where central bank digital currencies could play a very, very important role, and this is highlighted in a new paper that we put out by the Bretton Woods Committee, is really on cross-border payments. We had a system of central bank digital currencies where the interfaces were harmonized. You could probably execute payments on a cross-border basis at a fraction of the cost today. 
for a lot of migrant workers, when they're sending their payments abroad, it costs over 5% of the value of the payment just to just to execute right. the transaction. And it's very slow. So we can certainly do a lot better than, than we're doing right now. Now, in this process, the Fed is you know very far, far behind uh, in terms of their work on central bank digital currencies. And in the U.S., there's a quite a bit of skepticism about the need for central bank digital currencies. Why I is- think this work... Continue. Well, that's the heart of the matter. I'm going to go to Raphael Auer, who owns the high ground on this at BIS. He's documented the incredible friction of transactions in the real world. We all thought we'd be trading Bitcoin at, you know, John would be down at Celine trading Bitcoin for a sweater, but the answers were not. We can really get down to where this is efficacious for central banks. We can really squeeze this down to where there's no transactional friction. Well, there'll obviously always be a little bit of transactional friction, but we can do a lot better than we're doing right now. I mean, in, in, in theory, central bank digital currencies should be a pretty significant improvement over cash. It'll be just the safest cash, but but in terms of the default risk, because it'll be guaranteed by the sovereign nation. Uh, but you don't, don't have worries about storage. You don't. You can transact with digital cash across you know long distances. So to me, it's like cash plus. It's a, a superior to cash. Uh, and it's something that we that the U.S. should start to innovate on. There's a concern, Bill, that as you disintermediate banks, essentially those agents that really capitalize from those frictions that exist, that some of the functioning of markets that traditionally has supported things like treasuries starts to uh, ebb away. How concerned are you as you start to adopt new, less friction-filled <laughs> methods uh, and as capital markets slow in the wake of rate hikes how much does that really disintermediate banks that really are still essential for the functioning of the treasury market? It really depends on central bank digital currency design. And I think there you want to have a two-tier system where the, the, the banks continue to own the customer relationships. Uh, central banks don't want to have re- customer relationships with you know hundreds of millions of, of households. Uh, so they sh- should hand that off to the banking system. The second thing you want to do is make sure that the central bank digital currency doesn't pay interest. If it doesn't pay interest, it's basically going to be used for payments, not for investment. So that preserves the, the role of, of, the central, of, of commercial banks as intermediaries. So I think if you do those two things, uh, you essentially protect the, the commercial banking system as, as, as providing financial intermediation services. But the central bank helps provide a, a better payments medium. The reason why I ask this, on a broader sense, away from digital currencies, is there is increasing concern about how much of the risk-taking activity and how much, frankly, of financial market functioning has moved outside of the highly regulated banks into the private sector. <coughs> Earlier this morning, UBS Chair uh, Colm Kelleher came out warning again that there's a bubble in private markets and that there's risks building there as an increasing amount of lending moves to that area. Are you concerned about that? Do you think that there is this sort of situation forming on the heels of rate hikes on the heels of uh, the more tightly regulated banks that deserves greater scrutiny? Absolutely. I think this notion that all we need to do to fix the problems that we saw in March of 2020 in the banking system is to pile a lot higher capital requirements on the largest banks. I think that's misguided. Increase the capital requirements on the biggest banks, you're just going to push activity out into the non-regulated banking sector. And that's going to make the financial system less secure, uh, more unstable. Uh, than the current regime. So I think we need to think really hard about what were the problems in March 2020 and how to address them. Bill, thanks for catching up with us. Give us your view on that. Bill Dudley there, the former New York Fed president. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority. 
by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Lisa, this is Joy. Why don't you bring in Mr. Mayo here because he's all... AI and bankings. Which makes me very happy, actually, because Thanksgiving dinners, several of them, all of the discussion was about artificial intelligence. Uh, Mike Mayo focused on artificial intelligence as well, saying that it's not just going to be in big tech. It's also going to be in banks that you need to have AI talent at the financial institution, saying the marriage of banks with tech, including AI, is a long-term positive that can help the industry trend toward record efficiency. Joining us now is the one and only Michael Mayo. Mike, thank you so much for being with us. So tell us just how much banks could benefit at a time where people have written them off as utilities that are overspending and are not going to make big returns. Well, if you're a bank and don't have an AI strategy, then you don't have a strategy. Because if the bank across the street has calculators or spreadsheets or Bloomberg terminals, yes, and you don't have those, then how are you going to compete? So AI is here to stay. The marriage of banks and tech has been a good one. It stalled recently, but I think AI can rekindle that relationship by taking the productivity benefits, which have been... Uh, revenues per employee have improved by one third over the last decade. So banks and tech have been working, but I think AI can take that to another right. level. Is it a kind of thing where there'll be a few winners? You mentioned Goliath, Mike Mayo, in your uh, note. Is it a kind of thing where four or five will win and the rest lose, or can it actually be a benefit distributed across the industry? Well, I think most jobs at banks will be impacted. I mean, think of what I do. I'm an analyst. And analysis can be improved by this extra tool called AI. Now, I do think there will always be a human in the loop for most cases. In other words, to prepare for your show today, Lisa and Tom, I went to chat GPT and said, what should I say in one sentence about this? And they said, it's a revolution that will enable productivity savings and better customer service. Well, that's That's an an improved starting point. But, you know, it's partly wrong. First of all, I'm not sure it's a, a revolution especially at banks, it tends to be more of an evolution. And simply by enabling that potential doesn't mean that becomes a reality. And you've seen false starts. Cloud, you've had some buyer's remorse. Blockchain didn't come out as quickly as expected. You know, the dot-com bubble 1.0, Tom, you remember all these internet banks which didn't survive. So I'm I'm positive on the implications 
of AI, but I also I'm, I'm aware Let, of the caveats. Let's go back even further. George Ball, E.F. Hutton, they blew it. They couldn't keep up on technology. This is Lisa when there were cards with holes in them and a thing called Fortran. <laughs> the answer is I want to know who the losers are going to be in this. I mean, I, I know you've got single best buys and all this, but what is the scale of the losers that you see in technology and banking three to five years out? Well, I do think Goliath is winning, and you have this poll by uh, Evident. I know they, you've had the uh, founders on your show. In fact, they have an all-day conference in New York City tomorrow. Um, so JP Morgan is number one front and center right now, and their investments in technology are, are paying off. I'm surprised to see Citigroup in the top 10. For all their you know, issues with their back office, and they have major issues, they're making some uh, efforts with AI. On the other hand, those banks that have not advanced with digitization and the cloud and getting their data together could struggle. And I do wonder about some of these mid-sized banks. I mean, do they have the scale to really leverage these solutions? And getting talent. Talent is such a big issue. That's where and, I want to go. And you can't just buy talent off the shelf. You can get solutions, but who's actually going to implement those solutions in each business line? So when I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, how much are they going to pay them? I mean, we were talking about OpenAI paying $800,000 to engineers at just sort of base level. I mean, how much are banks going to have to pay some of this talent to come to their bank and develop similar solutions uh, that can effectively support and reduce certain headcount in certain areas? Well, I think what you'll see is you'll see a reduction in headcount and some of those savings plowed back into paying other employees more money, especially... Uh, AI engineers, they're in serious demand. But if you go to one of the largest banks, you have a whole career path. You can scale these solutions across tens of millions of customers as opposed to going to a smaller bank. I mean, what's your pitch? The, now, there are some smaller banks in this evidence survey that performed quite well because they were already ahead on technology. So I think those winning in technology can keep winning more, and those that are behind are going to have to have kind of a existential moment here. This can all work if uh, banks have the cash to invest, right? And that's sort of, uh, you put a pause on that at a time when potentially there could be a slowdown and there could be some kind of reduction in revenues tied to slowing capital markets. How much, I understand this is a longer term call, but how much do you see uh, a thawing in that kind of environment next year versus a tightening in the screws? I mean, this is sort of one of the big disagreements for the backdrop for banks and capital markets activity at a time where yields are still high, but we also are potentially going to start seeing the effects of that. Well, I promise you I will be the first analyst to ask that question on earnings calls if banks are spending too much money. Banks have no choice because of the headwinds from rates recession possibility right. and regulation. They must get more efficient. So if I'm the CEO of any bank and you're coming to me with the program for AI and want to invest a lot of money, I'd say, okay. great, where are you saving the money to fund that? Nobody cares. All we want to know from Mike Mayo is what to do this year 12 months out. 12 months ago, NASDAQ flat on its back. We've had a magnificent seven moonshot. Right now, Keith Briad index is 25% above the pandemic low. Is this the year 2024 of the banks? Do you load the boat here on banking? Well, look, the long arc of the benefits of the industry de-risking has still yet to play out. Uh, banks didn't get credit through the pandemic. The excuse was the government stim stimulus. Right. Uh, right now, you had some smaller regional banks fail earlier this year. So it's still delayed. So I still think over the next two to three years, you see the benefit of the improved banking industry resiliency play out. And then they aren't as risky as perceived. And they re-rate at least back to historical. And then the bigger question is longer term, do they re-rate above? Now, it's not immediate, Tom. 
I think as you get further out, you get better inflection points when it comes to bank spread revenues, interest rates effects, monetizing that capital markets backlog, and more clarity on regulation, which is a very big issue still. Just real quick, just to follow up on the AI, what is the right AI investment? Is it getting some sort of application to write your reports for you? Is it being able to collate data from your customers to basically prescribe what they're going to do or want? What's the correct way? There's no one size fits all when it comes to AI investments. It's about banks tailoring those AI investments to their use cases that they have that's unique to them. So I find interesting anything related to compliance, fraud, cyber, that's where you're seeing some really low-hanging fruit early benefits. I think when it comes to you know, some additional automation in the back office, I love what it can do for technology. The idea of a COBOL program change to Python, change to C++, the ability to change archaic code. And by the way, most or almost all large banks still are advertising for COBOL programmers. Tom, <laughs> come on. Bro, you're killing me. <laughs> By the way, my, okay. my, my first programming class had punch cards, too. So For, for two, Yeah, well, we're that ancient. Lisa's like, what are they talking about? <laughs> Single Best Buy, 10 seconds. J.P. Morgan and Citigroup, I had said. Okay. Barbell approach. Barbell approach. Mike Mayo, thank you so much with Wells Fargo. Katie Kaminsky, Chief Investment Strategist at Alpha Simplex, joins us now. Katie, the journey, the low. On a 10-year yield back in 2020 in spring, 50 basis points. The high over the last couple of months through 5%. It paid to be short, this bond market. You have been short. But the turnaround in the last couple of months has been brutal the other way. We've come from 5% down to 440 on a 10-year. Katie, you've been short. Are you still short? And if you are, why? Yes, still short, but that has to do with different signals having different views. Take a look at the chart for the year. If you look at the year chart, the last month has been a miraculous turnaround relative to where we've come. So we're still way ahead of where we began the year, uh, even prior to what happened and post what happened in the regional banking crisis. And so I think the key question to ask yourself about bonds right now is where are we going next? We have been looking all year for a disinversion of the curve, and we got that in October. And the next point is still really uncertain. Are we moving to a steeper curve? And if so, which way? Or are we just going to move around in sort of a range until we figure out what's actually happening with, with the Fed? Katie, why is it not as simple as taking a look at the economic data coming out, showing that it is disappointing much more frequently than it is outperforming, and just sort of leaning into that, which the rest of the market seems to be doing? This is a good question, because really what I find the most concerning about the last month is there's been a massive risk on rally on weaker economic data. And that to me is sort of a relief rally from where we've come because we've been through a lot, particularly in bonds. And so I think most people are buying right now because they're saying, if we see cuts soon, then we know that yields are gonna come down. My concern is that it could take a lot longer than people think pointing out that inflation is still way above target or at least 1% above target. So we could take a year or so to get there. People are very quick 
to think that things are over when they take time to actually um, get through the system. Katie, we're setting up for the new year. I want to go back to the advent of all this, and this is trend-based studies, and it's Andrew Lowe, the giant, and, you know, working with Alpha Simplex and Wells Wilder and Monroe Trout, John Henry, and the rest. And the germane question 20 years ago is the same today. If you look at trend-based studies or the complexity of trend-based setups, are they elegant right now? Is the math good or are you blind? Well, turning points are notoriously difficult for trend following. It's because we're not really set up to pick the tops and bottoms of big moves. And what happens in these turning points is we have to figure out using math, where is the next step of the trend? And that's where right now is an inflection point. And I'm looking in forward to see if we can actually see that steeper curve and when we've done historical analysis, what you do see is flat curves or steepening of curves is very difficult for trend right. signals because it's moving. Everything's moving. So if it's a stochastic environment and you've got to find a new trend, what is the key attribute for our listeners and viewers to establish the trend? Well, I think the key thing that we always think about as trend followers, we try to blend different views. So right now, the long-term view is still cautious. The shorter-term view is very, very optimistic. And if you combine those two together, you're really sitting in a situation now where we need more data and we need more time to understand where the market's going next. And that's why I think the market is so focused on every data point that comes out, because we're trying to sift through which view is correct. Is there a new trend? Have we moved to a new era, a new phase of the of the curve shift? Or are we still sort of treading water trying to figure that out? Time is expensive for shorts. And that's something that we have seen play out again and again. How much are some of those short positions being washed out, adding to the rally, the stability that we've seen in bond yields over the past week? And something that you think maybe can't last? Yes, of course. But I think there's a lot there's been plenty of shorts this year especially last year as well when you think about where we've gone um, we definitely need a balance between shorts and longs in this market we have seen more buying pressure recently which has been um, kind of perhaps causing some uh, deceleration or deleveraging in short positions but from the trend space that's a strategy that's much more slow moving than some that you might be discussing but there are definitely uh, potential that some people are unwinding shorts as well. Katie, thanks for the update. Still short on this bond market. Katie Kaminsky of Alpha Simplex. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
We take immense pride, and I'm talking for the wonderful team we have working 24-7 and giving you people of experience as we look at the horrific war in the eastern Mediterranean. We've been advantaged by Norman Roll to say he's a former senior U.S. intelligence official at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, barely describes his public service to the nation. Mr. Roll, I want to cut to the chase here. My amateur reading of fiction is that a ceasefire is an intelligence opportunity. Is, it, is this ceasefire good for the Israelis to develop intelligence in Gaza? Good morning, and you are absolutely correct. Uh, keep in mind that the Israelis have a variety of means of intelligence they must ingest at present. Uh, prisoner interrogations take quite a while. Laptops have uh, thousands of pages of data that must be re reviewed, and you're looking to identify locations of individuals, hiding sites, uh, weapons capacities, movement profiles, so that your troops can then use this as they plan operations when hostilities resume. So this this is indeed a, a probably one of the busiest periods for uh, Israeli and partner intelligence. Does their military effort want a longer ceasefire? Well, their military right now is supportive of the hostage release. They are concerned, obviously, that they allowed hostages to be taken and they're because of the failure of October 7th. And this, this period is allowing that innocent Israelis are returning home. But that does not under, undermine their commitment to eradicating Hamas. Do we understand? Have they articulated an endgame, Norman? No, and I think it may be a bit unfair to even think about what an endgame may be. So let me give you a give you an example. We are in some ways in the easiest uh, uh, period of hostage negotiations. Once the negotiations turn to uh, Israeli soldiers or or men, you're going to see Hamas perhaps demand a lot more from the Israelis that the Israelis are unlikely to give, and therefore this could extend the hostage negotiations far longer than than Israel could permit. And also we're looking at a period of time when the American presence in, among the hostages remains significant. Only one American has been released, likely because Hamas uh, wishes to keep American political pressure on, on Israel. So it may well be that Americans may not be released in the initial uh, period. There's something that you've said that I'd like you to explain to our audience. You said it's important not to confuse procedural hangups with strategic differences on hostage releases. Can you just go through what that actually means, Norman? In the early days of uh, hostage negotiations, you've got issues such as how do you uh, bring hostages to a safe location, uh, who, exactly which hostage is going to be released and what that particular group holding the hostages feels about their loss of that influence. And then on the Israeli side, you've got prisoners who have committed, in some cases, quite horrific acts and the families of the individuals behind those uh, 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 sentences are going to be unhappy about the release. So you're going to have a process of working through this. But that doesn't mean that each side in this issue isn't interested in the release and the ceasefire. In fact, all sides involved, Hamas, Israel, the United States, Qatar, they all benefit from a ceasefire and hostage release. Norman, can you just elaborate on the different factions uh, within the Hamas uh, group that are holding hostages and why they might be reluctant to release certain hostages, how this is sort of playing out in a political sphere over uh, in Gaza? Well, we not only have different factions among the Palestinians, primarily Hamas, 
Palestine Islamic Jihad, criminal groups that may have taken hostages and seek to sell them to their own Palestinian uh, uh, partners. But we also have a communications problem. Imagine if you're if you're these various groups and you know the Israelis are looking for your communications and looking for your movements. How do you exchange the data and conduct those intra-Palestinian negotiations just to get that process going? It's a very complicated situation. What do you expect Tony Blinken to do uh, on his latest tour of the region? Well, he's going to push for uh, uh, some sort of uh, <clears throat> continued pressure on Hamas to release not only hostages, but to think about how they would consider a day after event. There's been very little actual crystallization of what day after means. You may have anything from an international police presence to uh, Hamas thinking it can still survive with uh, uh, it, because it will retain hostages for a period of time. And these talks are ongoing um, among all of the various partners and perhaps most important here are going to be the Saudis because they're leading such a large portion of the Islamic um, uh, the Islamic world in Israel it's really to make sure that he has a sense of where the coalition is in terms of resumption of hostilities and how Netanyahu is handling the uh, uh, various hostage debates within his own government Norman rule uh, Aaron David Miller with us yesterday was just brilliant on how this is not 1967 if that is true and if there's not going to be a Camp David visit, a Camp David accord, whatever our memory is of normal diplomatic ties. What do you presume will be the administration's approach to finding some kind of accord? Where are we a year from now, two years from now? very difficult to 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 think forward. First, you've got to identify which partners are going to show up for a Camp David-style agreement meeting. I mean, think about it. Will Benjamin Netanyahu survive in his current political situation? It's doubtful. Who is going to be the leader of the Palestinians? Uh, Abu Mazen uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, is 88 years old. There will be no Hamas mm-hmm. presence at the table. So who do you bring to the table? That that that, that Those entities don't actually exist existed present. That's a massive question. Norman, it's great to get your view. It always is. Norman Rule there of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.